you look at the game last night and you think to yourself, this Manchester City team are going to be the first Premier League team to score 10 goals in a match. It is going to happen. We are going to reach that high water mark. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. My fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof with the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jim McGinnis in his life. Saturday on News Talk John Duggan with you through until 5 you can text us on 53106 or stream in the conversation as well you can listen on News Talk and watch us on the Off The Ball digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off The Ball YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app download it now for free in your app store this week's Saturday panel all about sports books in the run up to Christmas they say there's a book in everyone and in the case of our three special guests today the Saints right the Nation Holds His Breath is the autobiography from RT soccer commentator and Lyric FM presenter George Hamilton. Rebel Harsh is Cork City legend John Caulfield's memoir with Robert Redmond. And Crossing the Line is Willie Anderson's story with Sunday Independent rugby writer Brendan Fanning. Delighted to have you all three with you today. George, John and Brendan, how's it going? Good, very good. Very Thank good. you, John. Great to see you. Yeah, great to have you with it. Great to see you. And uh, we're seven days out, lads. And I've got the books here in my hand. For anybody who's watching, uh, The Nation Holds Its Breath from George and Rebel Heart from John and Crossing the Line, Brendan and Willie Anderson. Writing the book, lads, getting involved in this. George, what was this process like for you? Was it cathartic? Was it maddening? Was it brilliant? How how did it all come about for you and did you enjoy it? <laughs> it was every one of those things, John, believe it or not. Uh, it was uh, pretty uh, interesting to dig back into the past. It, it all started with an approach from Connor Graham, the publisher of Merion Press, uh, and his editor, Patrick O'Donoghue, and they put a proposal to me that I should be doing a book. It was high time I did. I'd been around long enough, and uh, I must have a story or two to tell. So I thought that that sounds great. Uh, we had a cup of coffee, and uh, and then they said, we have a title. Uh, you just have to write the book. Um, and when they said the nation holds its breath, uh, then it became uh, a, a process of trying to work out how do I go about telling this story? Because it's, it's easy just to go story after story after story uh, and present a, a, a series of, of anecdotes uh, and have a bit of a laugh along the way. And I thought, no, no, it, it deserves something more than that because I find myself on that Monday afternoon, 26th of June, 1990, in a very privileged position, broadcasting to RTE's biggest ever audience of 2.9 million people and coming out with a phrase that has stuck well, around uh, all, all those years. And so... I, I reckon I had to explain how this young lad from, well, I'm not so young anymore, this lad from the Crater Road in East Belfast ended up commentating on the finest moment of uh, of Irish football history. It was just uh, an amazing uh, thing to, to have done, I thought. So I started at the beginning, and, and that's when it became uh, cathartic because I was able to revisit the whole, the whole journey. And then also, on top of that, it became maddening because, as Brendan, I'm sure will know, and uh, John too, uh, it's... Um, it's quite tough uh, churning out the words. 80,000 words is, is quite a prospect. Uh, Brandon, Brandon will have done that uh, for Willie, which is a terrific book, by the way. Really enjoyed that. But uh, I just found it maddening uh, in, in, having, in the, the work that had to go into it. 
but maddening in inverted commas because it wasn't really maddening because when you see the finished product you're delighted I hear the George Hamilton voice in every word when I'm reading this George how long did it take you to write it? Uh, well it set up started up uh, just as Covid was kicking in in February 2020 uh, and the manuscript was handed over in uh, July of this year so what's that about 15 months? Very good and we, 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 we want people to buy these books. That's what I'm going to say. So we're, this, this is not a book interview club for the next hour, folks. We want people to buy these books over the next seven days. So we'll just get maybe one story from each of you about the, the, the relevant books you're involved in. But we, we this is more about the process of the book and the, the sports books that you love and why sports books are great. And John Caulfield, was this a therapy session for you when you sat down with Robert Redmond and, and talked about all the, the glory days and, and the, the journey with Cork City and, and, and beyond? Yeah, John, I suppose it was. Um... You know, I, I had a long career with Cork, so um, when, you know, I finished in April 2019, Liam Hayes of Hero Books, Liam had asked me a number of times previously when I had been the manager, maybe 2017 to 18, would I be interested to write the book? And to be honest, I wasn't, John, um, I think it was just totally focused on managing Cork at the time. And um, so then when I finished up with Cork, uh, Liam, Liam said, look, maybe this is the time to do it. So... In that period when I when I finished, you know, I met Robert Redmond and uh, we sat down for numerous days and weekends and uh, over about six months really we probably wrote ninety five percent of the book. So it was um, you know, while a lot of people were focusing on probably the managing career and and um, the end in the way, like for me it was more about you know the great days of how I started League of Ireland, you know, the way we we were playing up and down the country. There was no dual carriageways, there was no mobile phones. No one could find you. You went missing. It was fantastic, and um, so it was just it was just trying to go through the European matches, and um, I suppose really you know what a fantastic memories and, and and friends and friendships I picked up over the years, and and the teams and the players I played with. So um, it was recalling all that. So it was trying to be as honest and as accurate as, as I could be, and um, so it was um, you know it was an incredible experience because I think at the time when I wrote it. I didn't expect to come back into football. Um, I, um, I I thought it was done really, and um, so. Um, but here it is, and um, you know, thankfully, book is out there, and uh, I hope a lot of the, the League of Ireland people like it because um, there aren't many League of Ireland books. I think when Liam first approached me, you know, he was just saying, you know, there's lots of Gaelic books, lots of rugby books, and other sports, but there's very few in League of Ireland, and um, you know, so he was anxious to try and do something. With a player stroke, stroke into management, and um, you know, so um, you know, I really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully, for um, particularly a lot of the League of Ireland fans will enjoy that. Well, I think it'll do very well, first of all, on Lee's side and then beyond. Uh, John, very arresting start with the whole 2017 season, and when you won the double, and you had Stephen Kenny and Dundalk and yourself battling it out of Cork City. And Brendan, you're trying to put somebody else's voice onto print. Uh, you're an experienced journalist with Sunday Independent, and your subject here is Willie Anderson. Very interesting life. How difficult or easy, or what? What is it like trying to put somebody else's voice out there, and then when you read it, you're reading Willie Anderson's voice. Um, a few people have mentioned this uh, that they were that they could hear Willie in the book, and I said, "Yeah, Grand," and and, and exactly, the, I've been asked that question: How did you do it? And I wish I had some clever response I'd, I'd say that it was extremely difficult it wasn't it was it was it was pretty straightforward um we spoke if not every day every other day during the course of the 
the, the project, as we called it. So I got to know him extremely well. And first, you know, I'd, I'd run everything past him when I'd write it. I'd, I'd bounce it off him. And early doors, there were a few examples of, no, nah, geez, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. that that's not me. Uh, but we got over that fairly quickly. And yeah, after, after I'd say, geez, by the second chapter, I, I was, I felt comfortable in, in in Willie's voice, if you know what I mean. And I wasn't second guessing everything. Would he say this, you know, going back over tapes? Did he say, you know, he said that I need to change that. You know, it worked, you know, it, it worked quite, quite easily. And it, I, I didn't find that a struggle. There were other struggles in writing the book. His voice wasn't one of them. Did you know Willie well before you linked up with him and wrote this book with him, Brandon? Because you got to have the trust I, there. I, I, no, we didn't. Um, I knew him a long time. We weren't we weren't mates or anything like that. Um, I knew him on two levels. One uh, through coaching, I would have been on a few coaching courses that Willie had given, and which were always interesting. And I would have written about him, obviously, as a, as a journalist. So um, I knew him. We had our ups and downs a little bit over the years, which actually stood to us because. He was very keen that it wasn't going to be a hero worship affair and in fairness to him um genuinely at no point in the book did he come back to me and say like there's no way you're putting that in i'm going to look like a meter he he is he is blessed with a huge heart and a very small ego so we'd we'd no issues on that score at all um and it, it was a it was a really enjoyable process. Like he's a great, he really is a great fellow. And when you get to know him, he's very easy to work with. Infuriating in some regards. He couldn't remember a lot of stuff or even worse. As we went to print something, oh yeah, did I tell you this? And I said, no, Willie, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> you know, this is a month after the thing is on the shelves. <laughs> but anyway, we, we coped with that and we got on. And you wrote a book about, it was a, from there to here about Irish rugby, Brandon. Was this the first book you'd ghostwritten? Yeah, I, I I would have ghostwritten columns for people at various points along the way uh, in this in this window, but it, it was the first time I'd done a, a book, and I, I spoke to a couple of colleagues of mine who'd who'd done them to try and get a, a steer on what's the best way about it because I genuinely had no rashes where I was going to start with it, um, and also George might identify with this you're dealing with stuff that happened a long, long time ago. So um, what what do you lead off with? Um, and how much detail can you go into in order to bring people back to that time? And also in Willie's case, a lot of this stuff was 40 years ago. So memories aren't what they used to be. So there was a lot of legwork. So he would, he would, we discussed an incident. I would say to him, okay, what about such and such a thing? What about Argentina getting locked up? Let's go through that. So I obviously had to go and talk to the other people who were locked up with him in Argentina and the liaison officer who is still based in, in Buenos Aires and other people who were on the tour. So probably on that chapter alone, I probably would have spoken to 20 or 25 people. And, you know, a lot of them had varying versions of events. Um, so I, I, I've, 
I've never had to give witness, uh, give evidence in a court case, but I'm told there's nothing in rely as unreliable in life as witness evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I could certainly concur with that. And George, when you were constructing your book, did you have to speak to other people, uh, fact checking, or like had you kept diaries, or what was the process had, behind that? I had actually kept diaries, not in a formal sense, but I would often take down uh, little notes um, of where I'd been and things that had uh, stood out for me. Uh, and so uh, there was a lot of material that I was able to resurrect. It was funny, uh, a lot of it was on floppy disks. And of course, now uh, <laughs> we don't have slots for floppy disks. And I had great fun sourcing a floppy disk player that would play on my Mac. But I that the day I put the first floppy disk in and saw what was on it, I, I nearly jumped off the chair with excitement because it was all there. Uh, and it was just a question of reading through it all and refreshing my memory. And then off we went uh, with the writing process. Um, I, I was in a bit of despair at the start because I thought that the floppy disks, like the old Amstrad I had back in the 80s, might have been in the bin somewhere some time ago. Uh, but no, I have found them all uh, and they were all readable. Uh, and so that's that's where a lot of the material came from. And then a couple of uh, magnificent resources, online resources, the British Newspaper Archive and the Irish Newspaper Archive. And if you ever forget anything about a specific incident, well, you can go and look up the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, the Belfast Telegraph or whatever, and, and see it all reported there. And I, I just a lovely story that, that grew out of all this. In the book, I talk about my dad and the fact that he scored a hat-trick for Cliftonville uh, against a, a now-defunct team, Queen's Island, back in the 1930s. And there's a commentator on BBC Radio also called Barry Flynn, who out of the blue sent me a, a direct message on Twitter, which was a cutting from a Belfast Telegraph. Is this, is this your dad's hat-trick? And it was. I didn't have it, but he had it. That is fantastic, George. That's fantastic stuff. And the power of Twitter and the power of... Yes, uh, absolutely. Bar Barry Flynn's his name. He, he's obviously, uh, you know, like an Irish League historian, uh, if, if he's prepared to have gone into that kind of detail to be able to turn up something like that at the drop of a hat. When I, I couldn't actually find it. I assumed it had been in the Ireland Saturday Night, which is the now defunct sports paper up north. And that's not online, but clearly it was in the daily paper and Barry was able to find it. I'm reading about Bayern Munich, uh, John Caulfield, and uh, really funny stories, and obviously the the brilliant performance that you 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 know over the two legs in that UEFA Cup game in the early '90s. Was that easy to recall? Did Robert Redmond kind of do a lot of uh, research with you around that, or are all the matches just lasered into your mind that you played over the years? Yeah, I think John, a lot of them were um, obviously you keep notes and and that, but um, you know, to be fair to Bayern Munich, that wasn't one that you were going to get up too quickly, so. Um, you know, there was a lot, a lot of great detail at the time. You know, we had a manager, uh, Noel Manny, unfortunately, he's passed away now, but a phenomenal character of, of League of Ireland. You know, he would have been a player with Cork Hips, and he had a reputation for uh, you know, not, not taking uh, for treating players fairly, uh, fairly, fairly roughly. And he, uh, you know, as a manager, he was no nonsense, and uh, he was young for this growing up um, with Cork and trying to build that team. He was very much about the passion of Cork and taking out prisoners and then um, sending the lads that came down from Dublin on the bus back home very quickly. And and um, so by the time he got to Bayern Munich in 91, that team had been together for four or five years and it was a tremendous bond. Most of the players were from were, were from Cork City and um, we had a few outside players. And um, it was just one of those games where you end up playing in Mosquera Park the game was moved to Mosquera Park because they had to stand to hold 200 people. Um, but at the time, there was a lot of controversy because the chairman of the club tried to up the prices and um, there was a boycott by a lot of 
local city plans, which was very disappointing when you look back on it because the official attendance on the day was only four and a half thousand, where it should have been about 15,000. But um, it was one of those days where we ran ourselves into the ground, we went ahead, Effenberg equalised, and we were under the cosh for the second half. But just one of those days, they had the crossbar, Phil Harrington had fantastic saves, and um, we rode her up a little bit, but it was an incredible draw. And then obviously, two weeks later, we ended up in the Olympic Stadium in um, Munich. Fantastic place to be. But more importantly, when we arrived, the beer festival was just after starting. <laughs> more so, important thing, John. So, 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 John, when we got the invitation when we arrived to see did we want to go to the beer festival on a Sunday night, you know, it was we, 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 were, sprint, we were sprinting to get there, you know. So it was, um, you know, so it's just the, t- the time and, and uh, you know, diet and nutrition and, and uh you know, eating past every day and all this type of stuff was, was a long way from where we were brought up at the time. So, um, you know, so we had an incredible experience over there. And then the Bayern Munich game, you know, it was nil all at half time. And up to 76 minutes, it was nil all. And we had, we had one or two half chances. Invariably, they were all over us, but we still had one or two half chances. And uh, we just, you know, they, they, they were the type of games you lived for because if you think of from our point of view, we walked every day, you know. So um, I was never a professional soccer player. When I went into managing, I was, but you know, so every day we were working in our day jobs and we trained three nights a week, we played at the weekend. So we went to Europe, it was like the week's holidays, you know, and and because uh, you were able to train every day and we were able to enjoy the crack. So we're like, we're living the life of, we'd say, the, the professional soccer players we do in other countries. So, um, so it was unique from that point of view. And I think that's why a lot of those European trips were so uh, exciting for us at the time, you know. Did you commentate on that, George? No, I didn't, uh, funny enough, um, and I wish I had. But uh, I'm reminded about it all the time by Tony O'Donoghue. <laughs> oh, very good, yeah. yeah. Good Spurs, uh, man. There's no way of avoiding it. And Dave Barry's moment of glory, of course. Uh, I know, I, 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 I can't remember the circumstances surrounding it as to why it wasn't covered. We, we tended not to cover uh, League of Ireland teams in Europe in those days. I mean, obviously, looking back, it's something that should have been done. But uh, uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And, you know... If, where I started off in BBC Northern Ireland, they would they would cover the home leg uh, on television uh, for highlights, but they would they never sent the, for a television uh, away game. Uh, they, sorry, they did send. They never covered it on TV, so it would be done on the radio. But that was the way they did it. But RTE didn't do that. So sadly, Bayern Munich came and went, uh, and it was left to the print journalists like uh, Brandon's colleagues to tell us all about it. And, then maybe get the pictures back some other way. I think we might have had the pictures all right in Soccer Stadium at the weekend, but uh, there wasn't any coverage, so I didn't get to commentate on on what was undoubtedly what Cork City's finest hour. And Brendan, anyway, yeah, many. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Brendan, like when I, when I read all these books and I'm reading extracts, it's often about the things around the matches rather than even, even which are more illuminating than the matches themselves. Uh, I, yeah, but it, it, it's I wouldn't complain about my job at all because it, it's considered to be the toy department and that's fine and, and every, everybody every fellow wants to be a, a, lots of people want to be sports journalists but i was lucky enough i genuinely count myself lucky to have got in when i got in which is the late 80s when pre-professionalism and you know john was talking about uh, having a, a day job and then football was secondary so you were de- you're dealing with people like him who had real lives and real things going on and made them more interesting and they were accessible and there weren't media prevention officers st- stopping you getting to the players 
and he wasn't you know John was never as a player nobody was coaching him I imagine in how to, to speak without saying anything and how to be bland and how to be boring <laughs> uh, so if there was you know when Willie was playing rugby and growing up you know you know on the farm and in school and, and whatever uh, it was a very it was it was a bleak time but it was a very interesting time so there was you know it really was rich pickings there's lots in it and it would be much harder to do that job with somebody now uh who is maybe early 30s and and retiring uh and maybe keith earl's an exception to that at the moment yeah obviously he is an exception for obvious reasons um but most fellows would just go from school into the academy they've been in the gym since they were mid-teens they've been on the diet that no that john was talking about um you know they're, they're, they've they haven't they never had a real job <laughs> most of them so they haven't had much experience of life uh keith Earls clearly is, is a is an exception to that given his trials and tribulations which he he dealt with very honestly and and fair to tommy Conlon, you're talking about uh getting the voice my colleague tommy Conlon, who wrote keith Earls's book or ghosted it did a fantastic job and he helped me with mine he he edited mine as well before i even gave it to the publisher I had Tommy throw his eye over it, so I was I was blessed in that regard. Very good. You've got to take a break. Brendan Franning, George Hamilton, and John Caulfield have all brought out books for Christmas, and obviously for their lives as well. And uh, you know, we're chatting to them about the process, and obviously, you know, great stories and and what what great sports books are out there as well. Alternatively, as well, this year, five three one zero six. You want to get in touch with any texts? Uh, Andre Agassi's book open is brilliant. Says Kay. Friday Night Lights superb read. Says Barry and Donabate. The Boys in the Boat, about 1936 Berlin Olympics, a team of underdog rowers from Seattle will be the best of the US rowing teams from the likes of Harvard or Princeton to qualify for the Olympics and win gold. Written with a backdrop of Nazi Berlin as well. Excellent read. That is uh, one of our textures in 53106. And we've got to really appreciate people's um, contribution to the audience uh, of the show here. John Parker, uh, once a runner. Um, my top 10, part of this Texas top 10, Dark Trade, Donald McCray on boxing, back from the brink, Paul McGrath, semi-tough Dan Jenkins, ball forward, Jim Bolton on baseball, Friday Night Lights, Buzz Bissinger on the NFL, The Football Man, Arthur Hopcraft, that is a great book, Born to Run, Chris McDougall, The Sweet Science, AJ Liebling, and Levels of the Game, John McPhee. Thanks so much for that uh, comprehensive text on 53106. We're going to be back between 2 and 2.30 with George Hamilton, Brendan Fanning, and John Caulfield. More on their sports books and the books of the year. Back after this. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. The Saturday panel on Off the Ball. And this is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us five three one zero six. You can tweet us at Off the Ball. Latest score from the Camogie Club final. Uh, sponsored by AIB. Al Arthur Ballock two six. Sarsfield three points. So the Wexford side. Well, clear in that one. And Aston Villa, Burnley is off in the Premier League. So only one game left standing today. Leads against Arsenal from half five. This is the Saturday panel. The voice of the boys in green and Lyric FM presenter, George Hamilton's got a book out. The nation holds its breath. Cork City legend John Caulfield has also told his story with uh, Robert Redmond in Rebel Heart. And Brendan Fanning wrote Crossing the Line, the story of Willie Anderson with Willie in conjunction with the former Irish Rugby International. We're delighted to have George, John and Brendan with us this afternoon. You can listen on News Talk and also watch us as well digitally and socially on the channels for Off the Ball. For Periscope on Twitter, at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app. You can text us 53106, plenty of people giving their recommendations from across the country. 
And often in newspapers, folks, you get serializations and extracts of books. So I suppose we want people to buy our book for Christmas. But if you could each give me one story uh, to give us a taster for the audience, maybe, uh, Brandon, I'm looking here with Willie Anderson, all these stories, the hacker getting into trouble in Argentina, personal battles, coaching, tragedy. One thing maybe you might uh, enlighten us about. Uh, well, the, the, the story that convinced me to to approach him to do the book uh, was uh, from a little snippet I'd seen he'd given in, in an interview to somebody else, and I was just gobsmacked when I read it. I knew about Argentina, I knew about him when falling foul uh, of the law over there, but I didn't know a whole lot about the detail. And um, he for a, a prank, he was on the way home the night of the of the, the th third game on the tour and uh, saw Argentine, Argentine flag flying outside a government building of which there were many. And he got another fellow, tossed him up on his shoulders, a colleague of his, not a, <laughs> a randomer, high stress, <laughs> and picked the flag, brought it back to the hotel. And the next thing, the cops were at the door, took machine guns. And himself and a couple of other lads are in, thrown into the back of police cars, flashing lights, sirens, the whole lot. Spent about 48 hours being um, being questioned and arraigned or whatever the, the term is. And then they were brought to uh, to the courthouse and the, the sea of, of, of baying press people at the courthouse uh, was just something that bowled them over because Argentina was run by the military at the time and this was an opportunity for them to get free publicity, three fellas, um, four fellas in fact, on UK passports. And this was a couple of years before the Falklands blew up. So it, it was just food and drink. But when they were, when they had been sent down to the cells from the court case, Willie is sitting there and alone in this cell with etchings on the wall uh, from previous occupants and he's there and he's close to tears and he looks over in the corner and it's a little bit crude but there is a piece of human excrement in the corner of the cell and this is a couple of weeks uh, after he left home to go on a rugby trip which is going to be the best trip of his life and he's sitting in a cell just about to start crying because he has committed this prank which has gone wrong and there are three other guys in the other cells on the back of this. And he's thinking, Jesus, how did I get myself into this mess? So when I heard about that, I said, yeah, look, we have to do this story. How did he get out of it, Brendan? Pardon me? How did he get out of it? How did he get out of it? Well, he didn't break out of it. It, it was the other three uh, were seen to be, well, one of them, an English guy, uh, got off literally, you know, a day or two later. Uh, the other two, uh, Frank Wilson and Davy Irwin, did a couple of weeks in prison with Willie and then they were let go. Willie was the culprit. So what he was sentenced to effectively was house arrest. So he did the guts of three months under house arrest in Buenos Aires. And then they realized effectively, look, we've got as much publicity out of this as we're, as we're going to get. So either we shoot him or we let him go. So <laughs> that was it. They let him go. That's an unbelievable story and terrifying as well. And George, you were in Argentina in 1978. That was your first World yeah. Cup. Yeah, uh, and it was under the generals. Um, but the thing was, they were putting their best face forward. So there was no indication whatsoever that we, there was any kind of uh, military rule going on. The only the only indication that you could maybe ascertain was that the policemen, they wore navy blue fatigues as opposed to 
police uniforms. But that that was the only thing that struck me. I mean, they they did everything. They went out of their way to make this a success. They they had a, a choir of school children singing Buenos Dias, Periodistas on our first visit to the press center. Uh, they had um, wine and cheese party. Nobody knew Mendoza, where I was based, was the capital, my wine capital of Argentina. We all do now. But we didn't then. But we were taken to this polo club where there was a polo match laid on for the press, followed by this wine and cheese reception. Wonderful uh, Argentine cheese and even more wonderful Argentine white wine from Mendoza. So Argentina was like paradise when the World Cup was on there. The only thing that was lacking was a color television because although the pictures reached the rest of the world in color, in Argentina, the infrastructure wasn't yet there. So we watched in grainy 405 line black and white as the rest of the world enjoyed this World Cup extravaganza. But it was terrific. Hey, how am I to complain? Six matches in four weeks, Peru, Iran, Scotland beating Holland with that Archie Gemmell slalom, and of course, Brazil. Now, how's that for a debut World Cup? Is that your story from the from the book, uh, George? The nation holds its breath. Or well, you, I'll give you another one if you go on. Go on, give us another one, one if you like. <laughs> it's another World Cup story. It's uh, the uh, 1994, uh, and Ireland are going to play. It, it seems like uh, Saudi Arabia or or Belgium, Belgium uh, in the next uh, phase. So Jack uh, goes down to watch, see this game in Washington, and uh, Tiger Brun, the late Tiger Brun, who was my minder on the trip. Uh, he and I are flying down on the plane. Uh, and Jack has been hastily got a seat on the plane so he can go and, and, and uh, check out the next opposition for Ireland. Uh, and we're, uh, RTE, it was clearly Flahoulik at the time, we're up the front of the plane and Jack comes on the plane and marches down the back and takes a seat in row 22 or whatever it is. So uh, Tyke thought, that's a good floor manager, Tyke thought, hey, but this, this doesn't look good. We're up here, he's down there. We should tell the crew who he is. So Ty got up and told the, the lead stewardess that uh, that the, the Irish manager from the soccer World Cup was on the plane. And she told the captain, the captain went bananas. Said, what, what's he doing down the back of the plane? So Jack was brought up the front, given a tour of the cockpit, sat in the first class seat. And uh, this was all great. Uh, and, and he's loving it. And when we arrived in Washington, uh, it's the day of the game. Uh, so it's in the evening. And uh, Jack uh, is, is going to be picked up by a car. And there's a big sign up saying Coach Charlton. Jack marches over to the, the guy with the sign and we're kind of making our way sheepishly out of the airport when he hollers at me, hey, you two, come back here, there's no way I'm letting you get a taxi. And so we're in the car with Jack Charlton and his mate. So we go to the game. The game takes place, you might remember it, it was uh, Belgium against Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia went in front with a mad goal yeah. that started like at the left half position and then went to this, this guy just went on his way through the whole Belgian defence and scored. And it was 1-0 and that's was got to half time. And uh, Jack was obviously in the VIP area at halftime and uh, Tig went down to get him because the arrangement had been that if Jack was at the game, he'd talk to us at halftime. So he came up to our commentary position, but Tig had had to kind of uh, prize him out of the VIP area. And when he came into the the position, the commentary position, uh, to talk to me, he sat like this. And he talked to me with his back to me, which was like his protest. Why? The protest. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't want to be doing this. He should have been done in the in the VIP area. Then he left us. That's fine. Okay. So he goes back to where to see the second half of the game. Of course, the game ends up uh, 1-0 to Saudi Arabia. And it's Holland that are going to play next. So this whole trip for Jack has been a waste of time. But anyway, that's not the end of the story. Because oh. as we're making our way out and we're going out through the official press exit. And Jack is there as well. And he says, hey, um, there's, a, there's a mate. I'm going to have dinner with a mate of mine. Will you come? And, uh, and we went. And it was on them. You know, most amazing. We they took us to this restaurant in uh, in Washington to have the 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 meal with them. Uh, lovely time, lovely social uh, early evening with Jack. And then we went back to get the train back to uh, to where we were staying in New Jersey. Uh, Tig and I get get the plane, I should say. 
And we're sitting on the uh, edge of the runway uh, for hours, it seemed, in a lightning storm before the, the aircraft was taxied back to the gate and we were all dumped off. There was no flight back. And the, the captain was the same captain who brought us down. He says something terrible that no airline pilot will ever like to hear. He says when we said he was taking us back to Washington, back to New Jersey, and there'd be no problem getting the flight back to New York. Uh, and then, of course, the flight's off, and clearly what he's told us wasn't correct. There was clearly no chance of us getting back because of the weather. He said, how do you tell when a pilot's lying? I said, what do you mean? When he's moving his lips. <laughs> it's a different time, George. I mean, I wish it was like that now. You know, it's all obviously, there's a wall now, isn't there? But like, yeah. it seems that oh, you got absolutely. on great with Jack, and, you know, I'm sure you yeah, had your it's, moments. It's, but... it's, a, it's exactly, yes, we had our moments, but but they never lasted. And it's as, uh, it's as Brendan said, you know, we, we spent the day basically with, with Jack and we were, we, you know, we, we were just like mates who knew each other, not, not best mates, but like people who knew each other and got along together. Uh, he, he stayed on. Uh, we went back in a milk train, Tig and I, overnight to get back to New Jersey. Uh, but yes, you're right. We were, I mean, we were in the same hotel, for goodness sake, at Parsippany. And I think back to 1998 and the Euros, you know, uh, 1988, when uh, we were in the Valt Hotel in Dagerloch in Stuttgart. Uh, for a couple of days before the first match, Niall Quinn's there. He came back into the lobby one day. He said, just discovered that's a tennis court outside. Anybody fancy playing tennis? Uh, and I said, yeah, I'll play tennis. I played tennis regularly at the time. But there's no way when I got out there, I realized I was going to beat a guy like Niall Quinn because uh, I'm five foot six and he's got a wingspan like a like a, a seven four seven. There's no way I'm going to beat him. But it was it was a good afternoon. And at the bottom of that story is the fact that you just alluded to, John, and Brandon mentioned earlier on, you were part of the party and you were part of the team the, the the greater team and you'd access all areas basically apart from the dressing room and and they were they were prepared to have you as their friends and uh, be part of the party and enjoy the experience yeah the, tr- the trust seems to have broken down somewhere uh, john coffee obviously you're on the other side you've been player you've been manager um i know you mentioned munich there briefly before two o'clock but uh is there anything else from the book you you, you want to enlighten us about maybe just one story is it about the double run or anything else uh, i think you know when you look back it's it's, it's, it's the stories of um, being away. And obviously, you mentioned Munich earlier on, John, but probably the greatest trip for us as players was when we ended up in this Istanbul against Galatasaray because um, we'd never anticipated the hostility and the passion, uh, I suppose, and, and the viciousness, you know, which was, which was incredible. And um, over that game, they knocked us out. The following round, they drew, they, they drew Man United. If you remember, that was the famous very Cantona incident of him getting sent off and supposedly getting a few digs from the police going down behind the goal into the into the, into the tunnel. And we had witnessed that a few weeks earlier and uh, how aggressive uh, the place had been. But I think um, on a lighter note, when we arrived at Istanbul at our hotel, Manchester City at the time were sitting on the steps. Uh, they were up there to play a pre-season friendly. And Quinny, Niall Quinn was playing with Man City at the time, and uh, we pulled up in our coach, and um, they were playing Besatis or Fenerbahce, not quite sure, a friendly match on the, on the Tuesday night. And they were waiting to go off to, to the stadium to do their training. So we arrived for a Champions League game um, to play Galatasaray, and at the time, we were sponsored by Guinness. And um, Guinness, you saw, was surprised with about 30 crates of or slabs of beer for the trips. And we had a fantastic kit, kit man at the time, Mr. Cork City, he was a guy called Jerry Harris. He just passed he away. Yeah, very, yeah. Last Thursday, fantastic guy. But Jerry's, one of his 
most important role was to make sure he got the crates of, of, of Guinness on the plane and, you know, that we were sorted. So as the bus arrives, Man City on the steps waiting to go off to training, we're arriving to check into the hotel um, and all the gear is, is going in and in, being brought in. And Jerry says, lads, a crate of man you know, to, to bring in because it was 30 crates you brought in. And we're with, with a crate under our arm, each one of the players carrying up the steps. And the Man City players are looking at us and Quinny's going, ah, come on, lads, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just it was just a, a sign of the time, I suppose. And uh, I was supposed to, be to think back about how, how you know funny it was, but even the whole silly or stupid it was. But that was just the way it, the, 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 the way it was at the time. And um, so um, anyways, roll on after the match. And we had a good night afterwards, you know. But uh, it was just, I think, the... The ironicness of, the, of a Premier League team are, you know, looking at us. They're out for a friendly. We're carrying slabs of beer. We're going into the hotel to play a Champions League game. So not too nice later, you know. But uh, yeah, you had a few spare slabs at the end, did you, John? Sorry, you had a few spare slabs at the end. Well, funny. But what happened, John, was that it was the first leg of the game over there, and we actually got we actually lost two one, and we were expected to get well beaten. And um, Pat Morley uh, scored. We were two 0 down. We scored near the end of the game. And the crowd changed dramatically in the stadium. And um, the the whistling and the hissing towards our own team, you know, was incredible. And the players like were you could see that they didn't want the ball. And it was like you could see that you could you could feel the stick and the abuse they were getting from the the terraces because it was thirty thousand at the match. And we were absolutely elated after the match. And, so we went down um, to the dressing room and we weren't allowed to leave for about an hour and a half after the game because the bus, the bus had been damaged and they, they said for our safety we had to hold on. So we were buzzing and we, we all wanted to just get back to the hotel to get out, you know, because we were celebrating and it was a European night. And when we got back to the hotel, we were advised not to leave. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be safe if, they, if we were identified. Um, in in around the city, so um, we stayed in the hotel that night. And we had a fantastic occasion, and most of the the the, the waiters were um, either Benabashi or Basita's uh, supporters, so they were quite thrilled with us. And uh, we had a night. Mad story. That's just mad stuff, uh, John. And on on a serious note, yeah, very sad about Jerry. He was very much the the lifeblood of the of the club, wasn't he? I uh, absolutely. You know, he was a gentleman. He in different roles between going back and forth, Cork to the Cork United, Albert Rovers. He actually was involved in, in um, as one of the direct directors of the club, but in the role for us, he had been sort of the secretary administrator. He had been a coach for a little spell, and obviously he was a kid man towards the end of his career, but he was just um, a really humble, beautiful person, and um, there was no one that would say a bad word about him. He was just that type of person, so it was a, it was a sad loss, and, um, but he was... I suppose if you talk about Coxley, Mr. Coxley, he was the guy that that, that, that was that person. Yeah, well said, uh, John. We're speaking to John Caulfield, George Hamilton and Brandon Fanning here about Sportsbook because they're all involved. I have them here. If anybody's watching, George Hamilton, the nation holds its breath. John Caulfield, Rebel Harsh, all the success of Cork City and Brandon Fanning with Willie Anderson crossing the line 
on Off the Ball Saturday here on News Talk. 53106 for the listeners uh, getting involved about their favourite sports books. Afternoon, John Slane, the Badger, an amazing read, the story of the greatest American cyclist of all time, Greg Lamont and Bernard Eno's uh, battle for the 86 Tour de France, says Pat. Uh, best sports books on 53106 for basketball fans. I would highly recommend Hanging from the Rafters by Kieran Channon, The Book of Basketball by Bill Simmons and The Golden Boys by Cameron Struth about the dream team from at the Barcelona Olympics, says Liam in Limerick. In Sunshine and in Shadow about the Belfast boxing scene from a couple of years ago is absolutely incredible. Donald McRae's got a wonderful flowing and descriptive style of writing. The detail is awesome and important story, writes Sinead in Kinsale. And Circus Maximus on sporting infrastructure, an incredible read on the nonsense of hosting the World Cups and Olympics. Brendan Fanning, you probably haven't had a chance to read that many sports books, but maybe you have in 2021. Anything else you recommend that's not your own? Uh, the best one I've ever read, it's still, and it's stood the test of time, is, is Paul Kimmage's A Rough Ride. <laughs> um, absolutely outstanding stuff. Um, I'm uh, I'm halfway through, uh, you just mentioned there, Donald McRae's book. Yeah. I'm not a boxing fan at all, but um, got very good reviews, and it's as much about the troubles in, in, in Northern Ireland as it is about boxing. Obviously, there's a... It, it's a remarkable story in how sectarianism was put to one side when boxing was going on. It's incredible how how, how it unfolded. That's a that's a pretty good read. Um, the other one I, I, I not read, haven't read it this year. I came across it before. Um, it's Confessions of a Rugby Mercenary, uh, a guy called uh, John Danielle, a Kiwi who played rugby in France, where it is just like dog rough. And if you are the hired help, you're expected to lead the charge week after week after week. And there's a really, really good insight into the the uh, the trials and tribulations of earning your corn in the French top four team. Very good. And I'll be, I'll be marking them down. I, I laughed because I said a rough ride an hour ago when Shane Hannon asked me uh, my favourite sport book was, uh, Brendan. Um, George Hamilton, uh, either this year or previously, any sports books that you, you highlight that's not your own? We mentioned back from the Brink Paul McGrath's book. I think uh, the, the, my favourite of all was Tony Castorino with Paul Kimmage, full time, which is not very thick, but it's uh, it's a great read and it's very, very, very honest. Mm-hmm. The one I enjoyed uh, this year, uh, they had me in, uh, review it for the Irish Independent, was Peter Schmeichel's One, uh, yeah. which, as he says himself, is not his first autobiography. I mean, he published one, he said, uh, one of those cheap and cheerful football books that players of my era knocked out quickly without giving it any great deal, detail or depth. Well, this is better than that. It's uh, he's he's got it right second time, uh, and he, it it starts in Camp Nou in 1999, which is an occasion I remember well, uh, and goes on from there. It's lovely to get the insights into bits and pieces of Manchester United and how the, you know the disappointments. How he was he went to Portugal and he was to come back, and Alex Ferguson uh, decided he didn't want him back again, uh, and 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 he would find himself out of work and on the way to the airport with all his luggage and uh, had to go back to the apartment he no longer owned because. Uh, he had, to all intents and purposes, left Portugal. There's a lot of, of honesty in there. A lot of uh, it's better. It's it's better than your average. I'd have to say uh, it. It wouldn't be my favourite book because uh, Peter Schmeichel is not my favourite goalkeeper. But uh, there you go. It was uh, one I mightn't have picked up, but I'm glad I did because, uh, yeah. as I say, they asked me to review it. It was it was good, and I'd recommend it. I'd recommend it because there's plenty in it. It's it's quite a big book, uh, and there's plenty in it. The background in Denmark I enjoyed uh, fully, and. Uh, you know what? What has happened to the rest of his family? What had happened to the backstory? You know, is he is in Poland, and his, his dad was a bit of a spy at the wartime, and all that, or his granddad rather, all that sort of stuff. It's it's just great background, well filled in. It's called One. Yeah, no, I've read it, uh, George, and uh, the way he overcame nerves 
be quite a nervous goalkeeper when he was young, and then mm. he turns up at Man United, and he's very much this dominant figure, which was it was interesting that he's able to just change his mindset, and it was, it was fascinating. I'm just going through some of the books of the year here: Champion, a memoir by Pat Smullen. Obviously, that's a poignant read. Uh, Francis Crowley, uh, Andy, lessons learned in pursuit of glory from Andy Moran, the friend of OTB, about his uh, time with Mayo. Uh, Devotion, a memoir by Mickey Hart. Obviously, it's uh, uh, you know. Uh, a tough read at times but uh, definitely worth getting uh, Dark Blue by Shane Carthy uh, the former Dublin footballer Unbroken by Aidan O'Mahony the Kerry All-Ireland winner crossing the line as we have here from uh, from Brendan and Willie uh, This is Your Everest by Tom English and Peter Barnes I'm looking forward to reading this at Christmas Brendan I think this is uh, very well regarded this one Yeah that's a very good book um, really enjoyable uh, they brought it out ahead of the Lions tour um, last summer and it goes back to the Lions tour in South Africa in 1997, which was the first tour of the pro era. And I was lucky enough to get on that. I was out covering Ireland, had a development tour in New Zealand and Samoa, and I did a couple of weeks in that, and then undertook the longest sequence of flights in my life, which, please God, I'll never have to do again, to get from Apia in Samoa to Cape Town to arrive there about a week before the test series. And it was absolutely epic really really fantastic um and the lions won two one just to 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 put the the uh, the icing on the cake but it's um the style of the book the way it's done is all in first person pieces so for the sake of argument let's say there are 30 people or maybe 35 people interviewed over the course of the book and you get it in bite-sized chunks as you go and uh tom has used that mechanism before in doing a book no borders about irish rugby and it worked very well and it worked very well uh in this is your everest as well so it really does take you back and particularly from the south african side i remember being on the tour i could not for the life of me understand why they just didn't kick the ball up in the air and mow over neil jenkins who was at full back for the lines like it was just screaming off the page so it gave you a, a good insight into the turmoil that was going on in the springbok camp which obviously facilitated the Lions winning the series. So, yeah, it's really good. There's no coach tweeting at the time as well, um, back in uh, 1997. <laughs> he can't stay off it, can he? He's, he? I tell you, he's got a runaway ego, that fella. There's no doubt. It's, uh, yeah, every it's, time it's, you lose a muscle, he's, he's posted. It's the strangest it. thing. It's the strangest thing I've seen. The funniest and the most original and the strangest thing I've seen in the last uh, while on Twitter, being a Twitter observer. Uh, John Caulfield, a, a book maybe from this year or previous years you'd recommend for the listeners that's not your own Rebel Heart? Yeah, John. Um, yeah, I've obviously read a lot of sports books. Um, recently, the Milers, obviously, the contrast between John Myler, who was really strong in, in, in jail all his life, David getting the, the move to England to be a professional player and the contrast. And a uh, really good read. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, how that, that John attended every game for David. He, was, he also was his agent. So on a, on a cold Tuesday night, um, up in Carlisle or down in down in London, he was at every match to, uh, for David. But it was just a contrast in in, in the in their in their careers. Um, I suppose going back, John, there are very few League of Ireland books. Um, Neil Horgan um, had the rise the rise and fall of Cork City. Um, a fascinating uh, number of books about his career in the Celtic Tiger time when they were getting incredible wages uh, in League of Ireland. And how the club went bust, and how they, how they they weren't getting paid towards the, the end of two thousand and eight, and turning up without getting their wages. So it was um, you know the contrast of that era and at the time, 
And um, going even further back, um, one of my memories, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Eamon Sweeney had a book out, A Bit of Red, uh, about his time growing up in Sligo, going into his father's Sligo Rovers, going in with his, his, his family. And um, so it's, an, it's a very interesting read and um, it's fascinating, particularly if you have interest in the League of Ireland. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we won't go United now in a few years, John. Um, Sorry, John. Hopefully there will be. Um, Barcelona, the rise and fall of the world's greatest club uh, by Simon Cooper. Uh, that's definitely one I'm looking forward to reading over Christmas. Flight or Fight, we mentioned by Keith Earls and Tommy Conlon. Grassroots Stories in the Heart of the GA by PJ Cunningham as well is definitely worth checking out for Christmas. Uh, just before we finish up, John Caulfield, uh, George Hamilton and Brendan Fanning, thanks so much for your time uh, ahead of Christmas and to talk about sports books. Just about the year, Brendan, the All Blacks, fantastic stuff. Are you excited uh, about the next couple of years, this World Cup cycle under Andy Farrell and the men's team? Obviously, there's challenges in the women's game at the moment, but... I suppose the progress report is it from the men's side? Is it a, a positive feeling around Ireland at the moment? Yeah, I was I was really becoming pretty concerned at, at how long it, it it has taken Andy Farrell to get up to speed, particularly um, given the length of time he was an assistant coach and seeing close up what was going on when he was there under Joe Schmidt, and for some reason it's taken him fully two seasons, but their form of late has been really really good. So if they can keep that going into the Six Nations, then it'll be it'll be it'll be good. And that is a question of keeping a handful of key players fit uh, ahead of the World Cup and the <laughs> the ongoing battle to get into the semi-final, which we have yet to achieve. So yeah, lots to look forward to there. Absolutely, and uh, it's the, uh, with this forfeiture thing in in rugby at the moment, Brandon. I, I feel I feel it's very unfair. Do you? Sorry, you're breaking up with me there, John. Sorry, the, the, just the forfeiture of games in the Champions Cup, I feel is very unfair. Is it, There surely is another way of, of getting around this, is there? Yeah, life, life is full of things that are unfair, yeah. and, and sport is a good reflection of life and its unfairness. And EPCR are like, they're spinning uh, at the moment. When I say spinning, I mean they're, they're spinning around trying to figure out what's going on. It's very, very difficult, and they're not making a brilliant job, but they're doing the best they can. Yeah it's very, very difficult to get sport up and running in the current climate. So I would be cutting a fair amount of slack to any administrator who is sitting there thinking, what the hell are we going to do next? It really isn't easy. John, Galway United, what's the, the, the feeling about the next couple of years? You're, 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 you're going to be there for a while? Yeah, I'm here for two more years, John Hope. Um, yeah, we put a lot of structures on the ground. Again, it's um, really a strong sports city, soccer is strong. Um, but Galway have spent um, a long time in the first division over a period of 15 years. Most of their time has been in the first division, which has been disappointing. And uh, it needs to be in the Premier Division, but it's very difficult with the first division only get one team up. And obviously, it's added this year with the likes of Waterford getting relegated, Cork City obviously being down there, Limerick. Um, so it's not good for the League of Ireland that all the Southwest clubs are all in the first division and, um, you know, that's disappointing but from a Galway context we're obviously hoping the next year we can put a big push on and um, see can we get that top spot but it's 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 going to be a huge challenge but at the same time we love doing what we're doing and um and we're, we're hoping that you know next year we can we can do a second this year we're hoping next year that we could, we could go up, you know and I read about your battles in the book Rebel Heart there with Stephen Kenny when he was Dundalk manager or Cork manager, especially around 16 and 17. John how do you feel Stephen's doing the Republic of Ireland team are you excited about 2022? Yeah, I think we all we all want uh, 
to see can we get back to qualifying for the major tournaments. You know, there's nothing worse. You know, George, George has been with his fantastic career being at World Cups and European Championships. Nothing worse watching those those competitions and we're not involved in them because we, we have the great memories of Italy and uh, USA. So um, and that's really where you know the younger you know it, it gave it gave soccer a massive drive at that time and. Um, you know, so we're desperate to get back there. So, you know, Steve is doing this thing. It's very, very difficult. Um, but from a, a, an era for a couple of years where we were struggling to score goals and we lost Robbie Keane, all of a sudden we looked like we might be able to score goals going forward because our last number of matches have shown, you know, that we've created lots of chances and score goals. So hopefully, hopefully we can. It is difficult. and um, But it's one of those ones where, you know, it's... Uh, Stephen has done very well after after a slow start, um, but ultimately we need to qualify for tournaments, and, and that's what's going to be judged, judged on at the end of the day. I feel there's a buzz around the about the men's and women's team at the moment uh, in the Republic of Ireland. George, would you feel that having been in the trenches yeah. with them for so long? I'd agree. I'd agree entirely. I think it would have been grossly unfair to have judged Stephen Kenny on on one campaign which began so badly under the cloud of COVID. And all the, all that happened in the course of that campaign, all the all the upset. I think it's absolutely right. You know, if, he, if he's good enough for the job for one campaign, he should at least have a chance to feet under the table. Brenda made the point about Andy Farrell. You know, and have a go again to see how that goes. And I would be hopeful that uh, one way or another, Nations League or or through the group at a playoff, that they might make it to Germany for the for the Euros. And certainly, the women's team uh, seems to be on the way. I mean, it's 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 remarkable what has been achieved and how they've turned the corner under Vera Pau. Uh, and I think. Uh, Soccer at the moment uh, is in a good place uh, in terms of uh, the Irish international setup for both the men and the women. And George, just to finish, you got a finally an Olympic gold commentary this year. <laughs> yes, yeah, eleven Olympics. Uh, I'd never done an Irish gold medal. I'd done gold medals at Europeans and Worlds and so on, um, but never an Irish gold medal at the Olympic Games. But it finally came uh, with the two boys and they rode up that that two thousand meters, and it was something else. It, it really was. It was. It was like the you know the cherry on the icing on the cake. Well, it's a fantastic career, George. I'm holding up the books here. The nation holds its breath. Crossing the line, Willie Anderson and Brendan Fanning. George Hamilton, the nation holds its breath. And Rebel Harsh with uh, John Caulfield and Robert Redford. Robert Redford, like, like, I know it's nearly Christmas, lads. I need to take a few weeks off after saying that. I know it's Ro- Robert Redmond. Uh, that was a, a, a Freudian slip of, of magnificent proportions. Lads, the best of luck with the books. Um, and have a great Christmas and listeners out there all I can say to you folks is buy the books they're great reads and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the Saturday panel thanks lads thank you very much thank you very much happy Christmas see you lads take care the Saturday panel on Off the Ball